I didn't know a day in that season of my life without pain. I woke up every single morning in pain. And it had been that way as long as I could remember. It had been that way as long as I could remember. And for me, my vision of the future was imperceivable without pain. I tried every answer, every recommendation. I'd been to every doctor, the mainstream ones and the alternative ones and the natural ones and the oils and the things online. I'd, I'd, I'd seen everything. And I'd almost gotten to the place where I'd given up hope that I could have a day without pain. Finally, I, I, I resolved myself that this was my lot in life. This is the burden that God had given me to carry. Until one day my mom came in and she began to tell me about this man who claimed to be able to heal. This teacher who was attracting great crowds. And, and I didn't want to believe it because I had had my hopes up before. I had him dashed. But my mom began to nag me. You know how moms are like that. They just break you down. And nagged and nagged and nagged and nagged. Fine, mom, I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay, mom, just for you. But there was one catch. It was a long way away. And we don't have cars back then. And so we decided to walk. And I'm a proud man. And so I walked and I walked And with each step, I continued to know nothing but pain. At a certain point, my pain was bigger than my pride. And so I sat down on a cart and two donkeys pulled us across the plains until we got to where this teacher was. And their crowds were great. The lines were thick. And so I got in line for healing. I couldn't even see the front of the line. And as somebody who didn't even want to be here, I was just humoring my mom, said, there's no way he'll get to me. There's no way he'll find me. There's there's no way I'll get my chance. But I kept waiting and waiting and getting closer and closer. And finally, it was my turn. And I don't really remember what he said to me. I don't really remember what the conversation was like. All I know is I finally had the moment I was dreaming for, a moment without pain. And then he passed me by. And he said he was gone with his disciples to go and teach them. And for the first time in my life, I could actually run without pain. And so I ran and began to listen as he taught. And he said things that I'd never heard before. He said things that I didn't agree with. He said things that I didn't understand, but I wanted to hear more. And when he was done, I looked around and I said, I've never heard someone teach like this. As you might have been able to guess, that wasn't my story. But it was somebody's. The Gospels tell us that when Jesus left the desert after being tempted, he began to teach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And crowds from across the Middle East came to hear and be healed by this rabbi from Nazareth. And one day after healing, maybe a man like that was included. 
He shared a message that still is changing our world today. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's recorded in the book of Matthew chapter 5. It's a, a short sermon. In evangelical world, if I gave a sermon like this, most of you would feel like you'd been shortchanged. You go, that's it? I get my Sunday morning for that? That's it? You worked your whole week for that? But it's a sermon that's still changing our world. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. And so I'm going to invite some readers to come forward now. And we're going to do something that we don't often do in church. Today, we are going to read to you the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. All 110 verses. We're not going to put it on the screens for you, because then you would experience it differently than they did then. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to follow along. If you forgot yours, maybe you'll bring it next week. But I want you to listen to it. And here's how I want you to listen to it today. I want you to listen to it as if for a moment you don't know this Jesus is going to die on a cross. I want you to listen to this today as if for a moment you don't hear his name and think of the chain around your neck. I want you to listen to this for a moment as if you don't yet know this man is the son of God who was raised from the dead. I just want you to listen to it for a moment as if you were going to hear someone give a speech or a talk. Because my words aren't going to last nearly as long as these words have. And these words have power. And so whether you follow along or just listen, I want you to lean into these words today. And Clovis is going to get us started. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering... Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you. Because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way that your good deeds shine out for all to see so that, all, so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. 
Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to the court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge, who will hand you over to an officer, and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. You have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say, by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say, by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say, by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say, by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes, I will. Or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. 
You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need. And forgive us our sins, as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. Then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father, who knows what you do in private. And your father, who sees everything, will reward you. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your whole body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food? 
and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon, in all his glory, was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's troubles is enough for today. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to the pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents... If your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if your sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. 
On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rains come in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Fifteen minutes. And yet the words still hang with power today. Two thousand years later. Just by a show of hands, how many of you agree with this? You believe these are the words of Jesus? Raise your hand. Okay. It's really funny. If I walked out here after we were done and said, I'm not really sure these are the words of Jesus. You know, one of you would call a business meeting into order and I'd go home without a job today. You know, it, it would be a pretty radical thing. But, but what I think is funny is not how many of us raised our hands to say that we believe that these are the words of Jesus. I think what's interesting is, is the response we have even 2,000 years later to this message that's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount or the Discourse on the Hill. See, I think many of us have an experience that I had this week, even as I read through this passage again and again. You get to certain points in the text in Matthew 5 through 7, these 110 verses, and you, you go, say what? Like, really, Jesus? Did, 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 I, did I read that in the right translation? Did I catch that? Like, did I miss something? Because I think what happens over time is that we lose the power and the challenge of the words of Jesus. I'm just going to share with you a few things he said in that passage. Anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Any man who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do not worry what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. And it's just a few. Here's what I think happens, and I'm just going to share this because this happens for me, and I'm assuming we're not that different, is that you read the words of Jesus that you agree with naturally, and you go, yeah, Jesus, right on, tell him. And, and then you read the words of Jesus that, that cause you to say what? And, and you go, well, what Jesus really means here is it's kind of a metaphor. He's being allegorical here. And, and we kind of explain it away. We kind of lean back from the words of Jesus instead of leaning in. And you read through a passage like that, Matthew 5 through 7, and you don't ask yourself, are these the words of Jesus? You ask yourself this question. Do you believe we're supposed to live out these words today? All of them. See a very different response. All of us jump at the idea that they're all the words of Jesus. We just don't jump at the fact that we're actually supposed to live them today. 
And here's the big idea that I want you to take home today. That following Jesus means uttering say what as often as you say amen. Following Jesus means that you say say what as often as you say amen. And it's not just because it's my experience. It's because this is the experience of the first disciples whose stories we read about in the gospels. I'm just going to share with you three quick examples this morning. First one comes from Matthew 16. It says, Peter pulled Jesus aside after he said, I'm going to be crucified. And he began to rebuke Jesus saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're a hindrance to me. Jesus said, no, Peter, you can say, say what all you want, but this is actually what I'm going to do. And it doesn't just stop with Peter. In the book of John, Jesus says similar things about his crucifixion. And it says that he was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, which one of us is going to betray him. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, which is John's way of describing himself in this biography, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to John to ask Jesus who he was speaking of. Translation, hey, you ask him. No, no, you ask him. I'm scared. No, you ask him. What, Jesus? One of us is going to betray you? We've been with you for three years. One of us is going to betray you? And then in Mark, we read that there were some who said to themselves indignantly, what ointment? Why was this ointment wasted like this? In this story, if you don't remember the story, a woman brought a jar of perfume that was worth a year's wages. Makes Macy's perfume counter look cheap. We're talking thirty or $40,000 in the modern day. And she breaks it on the feet of Jesus. Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And so they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You see, if, if we're not better than the disciples of Jesus, and I don't think we are, I think we look down on them sometimes like they're knuckleheads and not refined and not smart, but I think they're just as smart as we are. If we're the same as those disciples, then we're going to have moments in our lives as we follow Jesus where Jesus is going to say something or challenge us to do something. And instead of going, yep, amen, we're going to go, what? You want me to do what? You say what? about this situation. And I think over time, what happens is we follow Jesus is we begin to lose sight of those things. And so in this series, over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about that kind of Jesus, that kind of message and that kind of experience. And this series is going to be built on two pillars, like a building. And the two pillars this series is going to be built on is this. The first one is, these words of Jesus are for today, not for eternity. They're for today. Now you say, Scott, why why is that significant? Because since Jesus uttered these words, followers of his have been trying to explain them away as if they don't apply. Because they're hard. And we need to remind ourselves that Jesus didn't give these words for the heck of it. He gave them to us because he wants us to actually do them. 
Now, there's a whole conversation about what do you do with the words of Jesus in this passage, because there are some things that I think are prescriptive, like your doctor gives you a prescription and says, go take this. I think Jesus did mean for us to turn the other cheek. I think he did mean for us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There are places where I think he's using hyperbole. I don't think he wants every one of us to walk around with one eye and one hand. But I think we should ask, why is it that we grab for hyperbole when we're uncomfortable with something? And then there are certain things that are descriptive. He's describing what life looks like when you enter into his kingdom in relationship with him. He's not saying, hey, go out and try to be persecuted. He's not saying, go try and and be poor. He's not saying, go try and, and mourn. Put yourself in a situation where you're unhappy. But he says, when you are in my kingdom, you're blessed. But you go, that doesn't make sense. That's why you got to come back for the next four weeks and understand this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And the reason why I think these words are for today is how Jesus ends this passage. He uses a parable where he says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it, as in like puts it into practice, is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock, a solid foundation. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Jesus is saying, if you live these words out, it will put your life on a solid foundation because a storm is coming for all of us. All of us are either in a crisis or headed for a crisis or coming out of one. And we need a solid foundation. So the first pillar of the series is these words are for today, not for eternity. The second one, the second pillar, is that we need to restore our image of Jesus. We need to restore our image of Jesus in the same way that that some of you have gotten into or know people who've gotten into this idea of restoration. Restoring an old car, restored wood, reclaimed things. We need to reclaim our image of Jesus There's a church on the other side of the country right now that's in the middle of a series called Savage Jesus. I'm a little partial to the title for obvious reasons. (laughs) But what they did with this title I think is interesting. If you're not aware, my last name, Savage, is now a buzzword. It's a a cool word. It's going to be my last name in 15 years when it's not cool anymore. When it's going to be like radical or tubular or yeah, dude, the words that have, you know, no longer been cool for a long time. But the word savage today now means out there, crazy, unpredictable. And I think sometimes we've lost our sense of the savageness of Jesus. We've tamed him. Some of us, we love it when Jesus lets people have it and our Jesus is angry and violent like a preacher pounding on his pulpit. Others of us, our image of Jesus is really nice, smiles a lot, wants everybody to be happy and never says a word that makes anybody uncomfortable. And both of those images are wrong. Because Jesus is neither and both at the same time. 
And we need to restore our image of Jesus who makes us uncomfortable. Because if Jesus has stopped making you uncomfortable, you've stopped worshiping Jesus. Question for you. When's the last time Jesus shocked, offended, disturbed, amazed, or surprised you? When's the last time Jesus shocked, offended, disturbed, amazed, or surprised you? Because if he hasn't, you've stopped following Jesus because that's the experience of the early disciples. Constantly, they were turning each other and goes, who is this guy? What did he just say? What does he want us to do? And they pull him aside and, and try to teach him the right way. And then he says, get behind me, Satan. So you might say, if Jesus has told you, get behind me, Satan, you're doing something good because you're like his disciples. And in this series, we're going to talk about what does it look like for us to restore our image of Jesus who's big enough to be worshipped and wild enough to make us uncomfortable. Because I think for many of us, Jesus has become like those animals you look at the zoo. Nice to look at, but tamed. And Jesus will not be tamed. So before we go today, at the end of this very different kind of sermon, I've got three next steps for you. The first one is this. I want to encourage you to read Matthew 5 through 7 this week at least a couple times. Again, it, it took them 15 minutes. Most of the time it's 13 to 15 minutes. But I'd encourage you to read it through a couple times. And if you're here as a family with your kids, then I'd encourage you to read it as a family. Because... One thing I'll tell you, if, if you're here with your kids or you're watching online with your kids, on average, we're going to get about 40 to 45 hours with your kids as a church. In a year. 40 to 45 hours. On average, if you're a parent, you're going to get 3,000. And if the only spiritual investment your kids are getting is the 40 to 45 hours you get at church, you're missing out. And so I'd encourage you to read this through with them and ask them what they think. Please do not let them gouge any eyes out or cut off any hands. I do not need that one on my shoulders this week. Number two, reflect on your life and your thinking and ask this question. Is there a place where Jesus has been challenging me and I've been resisting? Is there a place where Jesus has been challenging me and I've been resisting? So I want you to reflect on, is there a place where maybe I've lost sight of this Jesus who challenges and pushes and makes uncomfortable? In the 18th century, there was a philosopher named Voltaire who was not very kind to Christians. Said lots of things that were difficult, even untrue. But one of his phrases has lived on for the last 200 years, and I think he is spot on. He said, if God created man in his own image, man has been returning the favor ever since. For many of us, Jesus hates everybody we hate. Jesus votes like us in every election. And that's just not possible. Because we're broken, sinful people. And there's places where we're not on the same page as Jesus. And we need to step back and go, I maybe have lost sight of some things. And I need to be challenged again. And then number three, I want you to every day this week, pray a surrender prayer, committing to follow Jesus as the leader and Lord of your life. 
Whenever we baptize somebody here on the stage, and we'll baptize in three weeks on May 20th, one of the questions we ask them is, are you prepared to follow Jesus for the rest of your life? Because it isn't just I'm inviting Jesus into my life and asking him to forgive my sins and save me. It's I'm preparing to offer him my life as my Lord and my leader and follow him. That's hard. Because sometimes Jesus wants to go where you don't want to go. And he wants you to do things you don't want to do. You want to drive to L.A. And he wants to drive to Maine. And it's a lot easier to sing Jesus takes the wheel than it is to actually live it. One final story before we go today. My kids and I are reading through the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. I say we're reading it. My, my six-year-old pays a lot of attention. My three-year-old's not so much. Typically, we're stopping to tell them stop, stop hitting each other or falling off the bed. And we're in book three. We're kind of stuck. We'll finish it at some point. But in book one, my favorite scene in the whole seven-part series involves the four children who are the center of the story, Peter, Susan, uh, Edmund, and Lucy. And they're preparing to meet the character in the Chronicles of Narnia who represents Jesus, a lion named Aslan. And their guides, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, are telling them about Aslan. And one of the children asks the beavers, is he safe? It's a lion. And Mr. Beaver says these words. He says, safe? Safe? Who said anything about safe? He's not safe. But he's good. Jesus is not safe. He will disturb you. He will make you uncomfortable. And if you follow him, he will never leave you alone. And over the next four weeks, we're going to go on a wild ride as we reclaim the Jesus who's not safe, but good. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.